Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Race and Repentance for Martin Luther King Day and is based upon Sunday, January 27, 2008 lectionary readings. Two weeks ago, the Obama 2008 campaign opened its Palo Alto office down the street from my house. I hope the presidential campaigns don't argue whether gender or race is more important, and that they address a breadth and depth of issues. But every time I pass by their office, I wonder, is America ready to elect a black man as president? And not just any black man but the multiracial Barack Hussein Obama, a man who was born in Honolulu to a white mother from Wichita and a black father from Kenya, whose Indonesian stepfather took their family from Honolulu to Jakarta when he was six, a man whose Muslim Arabic name conjures up associations with a pathological dictator and the world's most dangerous terrorists, the first black to be elected as president of the Harvard Law Review, and our country's only currently serving black senator. Is America ready to take another step beyond its racist history? It's a provocative question for 2008, when we'll commemorate the 40th anniversary of the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. on April 4, 1968, it's also a provocative question because in some ways, despite significant progress, our country is still deeply racist. Racial reconciliation and equality in a comprehensive sense, relational, structural, economic, political, educational, all these remain unfinished tasks. Consider, for example, the movie Crash, which won three Oscars in 2006, including Best Picture. The story opens with a car wreck that symbolizes the collisions between ordinary people because of their racist rage. This rage lies just beneath the surface of nearly every aspect of our identity, our ethnicity, our English slang or the accent that we use, work, dress, music, marriage, and family. In the film, a Persian shopkeeper laments, they think we're Arabs, a Hispanic locksmith, two black hoodlums, a wealthy black film director, redneck white trash, a despicable suburban white couple, a naive white rookie cop, and other ethnic stereotypes are all haunted because they project onto others paranoia, bigotry, and mutual misunderstanding. The director, Paul Haggis, does an especially good job of depicting racism not only between people who are different, but also among people of the same groups. In the Gospel this week, Matthew writes that, quote, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Matthew 4, 17. 
Those are the exact words that the wild and woolly John the Baptist preached in the parched desert of Judea and at the shores of the Jordan River. In Mark's parallel account, they're also the very first words spoken by Jesus. To repent, says John Howard Yoder, is not to feel bad, but to think differently. To repent doesn't mean to grovel in self-hatred or pious sorrow. When you repent, you turn around, change directions, choose a different path, or make a radical rupture. Repentance signals an abrupt end to life on autopilot or to business as usual. And that's exactly what happened in the gospel this week when Jesus called two sets of brothers. When Jesus saw Peter and Andrew fishing in the Sea of Galilee, he invited them, come, follow me. Matthew and Mark dramatized their unequivocal response. At once they left their nets and followed him. Jesus then saw James and John fishing with their father Zebedee and likewise called them. And we read, they immediately left the boat and their father and followed him. A year or so later, speaking for the twelve apostles, Peter could even say, Lord, we've left everything to follow you. Mark 10, verse 28. Why such urgency and abandonment? Why not go home and talk it over with the family? Won't friends think we're crazy, impulsive, even irresponsible? Won't you regret such a categorical decision? Why not hedge your bet? In the epistle this week, Paul admits that from a human perspective, the call of Jesus to repentance is both foolish and scandalous. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 and 23. Jesus invited Peter, Andrew, James, and John to reorient their lives by following him, because in his own person, he said, the kingdom of God has arrived. Jesus both announced and embodied God's rule or reign on earth, right here and right now. There was an unmistakable element of cosmic fulfillment in his preaching, teaching, and healing. The kairos has come. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news, he said. That Greek word, kairos, denotes a critical juncture, a divine intervention, or a special moment. In con contrast to chronos, or everyday clock time, you plot chronos on your calendar like the soccer game on Tuesday at 4 p.m. With Kronos, you might procrastinate with very minimal consequences. But Kairos is different. Because Kairos denotes a unique opportunity, it invites a radical response, an urgent choice, or a fundamental reorientation. Peter, 
Andrew, James, and John sensed God's kairos, and so they left everything at once to follow Jesus. Their father, the hired help, the boat, the nets, their livelihoods and families, everything that was safe, predictable, and familiar. In stark contrast, Jesus lamented that Jerusalem, quote, did not recognize the kairos of God's coming to you, Luke 19.44. It's one thing, he warned, to be able to predict the signs of the seasons or the weather, but quite another to recognize and to act upon the signs of the kairos, Matthew 16, verse 3. Throughout the Bible, peripheral outsiders who are marginalized by mainstream insiders connect with Jesus' urgent invitation. The religiously suspect, the ethnic enemy, social outcasts, the economically poor, the morally impure. Smug establishment people often reject the invitation. They don't believe it or choose not to hear. We read, for example, that a wealthy businessman went away sad when Jesus invited him, come, follow me. Mark 10.22 The pagan Ninevites, on the other hand, understood the kairos of God. And much to Jonah's shock and chagrin, those foreigners and pagans responded to his preaching. They repented and believed his message about Yahweh. Racial reconciliation is central to the gospel. Paul even describes the work of Christ as one of reconciliation between warring factions, which in his day would be Jews and Gentiles. We read in Ephesians chapter 2, 14 to 16, For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. His purpose was to create one new man out of the two, thus making peace, and in his one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. New Testament images of heaven are gloriously multi-ethnic. We read in Revelation 7, verse 9, I looked, and before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language. Part of Martin Luther King Jr.'s many-faceted genius was his recognition that chronos, mere clock time, is no match for kairos, that opportune moment of God's visitation. He knew that since racial reconciliation is part of the gospel, that the gospel necessarily has political ramifications. His life and ministry and the larger role of the black church are instructive. Lerone Bennett points out in his book, Before the Mayflower, 
how toward the end of the 19th century, the black church quickly established itself as the dominant institutional force in black American life. King himself was a churchman, and there was never a time when he was not a pastor at Dexter Avenue Baptist Church in Montgomery, and then at Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta. He once described himself as, quote, the son of a Baptist preacher, the grandson of a Baptist preacher, and the great-grandson of a Baptist preacher. The church is my life, and I have given my life to the church. Martin Luther King Jr. wisely understood that the power of the pulpit wielded a twofold function. First, pastoral mediation to reconcile people to God and to each other. And secondly, prophetic exhortation to bring the gospel to bear on our contemporary culture. In King, writes Mervyn Warren, the man and the moment met. He made a Christian decision on behalf of social, economic, and political justice, and the world was changed. Only time will tell if Obama, or for that matter, if any other candidate, might embody a new prophetic message for our own political moment. And now for further reflection. Can you recall a time when you truly repented or resisted repenting? When have you experienced moments of kairos that interrupted everyday chronos? What have been your experiences, positive or negative, of racial reconciliation? And for Obama's Christian experience, see the interesting piece, My Spiritual Journey. This is an excerpt from his book, The Audacity of Hope, which was published in Time Magazine, October the 16th, 2006, and is widely available on the internet. Race and Repentance, for Martin Luther King Day, January 27, 2008. For books this week, I review a book called God Grew Tired of Us, a memoir, by John Bull Dow, written with Michael Sweeney, Washington, D.C., National Geographic, 2007. When you consider that John Bull Dow started the first grade when he was 18 years old, scratching his first ABCs in the dusty ground of a refugee camp, his memoir is inspiring by any measure. It's hard to imagine anyone surviving what he describes, much less flourishing once he had the opportunity. By the time Dow started copying books from the refugee library, learned English and Swahili in order to understand the instruction, passed the Kenyan high school exam, then made it to Syracuse, New York, he had wandered upwards of a thousand miles over 14 years 
from his bucolic village in southern Sudan. Sudan is not only the largest country in Africa and one of the most complex, it has 572 tribes that speak 114 languages. Sudan is also one of the most war-torn countries. The Darfur genocide in western Sudan rightly grabs our attention, but for 25 years civil war raged in the southern part of the country. The white Arab and Muslim government in Khartoum has tried to impose strict Islam as the state religion for the entire country, but the black and mainly Christian South rebelled. In 2005, a comprehensive peace agreement was reached. When the Khartoum government bombed Dal's village of Duk Payal in 1987, he fled with thousands of other displaced Sudanese. He was 13 years old. Rape, disease, pillage, daily burials, wild animals, famine, they sometimes ate mud and drank urine, government troops and hostile tribes, none of these prevented Dao and some 265,000 Sudanese from reaching refugee camps in Ethiopia to the east. Most of these refugees were young boys and a few men, as women and girls could hardly survive, and so they became known as the so-called Lost Boys of Sudan. When Ethiopian troops started slaughtering them, the refugees trekked 500 miles south to safety in Kenya. By then, Dow was 18 years old. Nine years later, he was one of only 3,600 Sudanese refugees in Kenya who were resettled in the United States. Dow was the first to thank the many people who helped him in America. But it bears saying that by his account, he was totally self-sufficient about six months after he arrived. He finished community college, entered Syracuse University, met and married a Sudanese woman from his Dinka tribe, started several foundations to help Sudan, sent most of his hourly wages back home, and was featured in the award-winning documentary film God Grew Tired of Us, the story of the lost boys of Sudan. It's only fitting that Dow's improbable story ends with reconnecting with his mother, father, and siblings. God, he writes, had not forgotten me after all. John Bull Dow, God grew tired of us. For film this week, I review a Vietnamese film called Voit Song, in English, Journey from the Fall. When the credits run at the end of this film, director and writer Ham Tran, a graduate of UCLA's film school, dedicates his wrenching drama to the millions of ordinary citizens who fled Vietnam on boats, or who, having stayed behind out of loyalty to their country, were subjected to horrific re-education camps because they dared to oppose 
the so-called revolution. The story in this film begins with the fall of Vietnam to the communists on April 30th, 1975, and it ends, improbably enough, in Orange County, California, in 1981. Tran follows the harrowing fate and fortunes of one family, and in various subplots, their friends. The father, Long, is imprisoned in successive re-education camps. He insists that his wife, mother, and son flee on the overcrowded, rickety boats. And so, a deeply loving family is rent asunder. The communists, in their brutality, observes the grandmother, quote, have lost their humanity, end quote. I won't spoil the film by revealing what happens to the family, only to say that the challenge of immigrating to the United States is as arduous as surviving as a refugee. The film has won awards at 16 film festivals. Journey from the Fall, from the year 2007, in Vietnamese, with English subtitles. And for poetry this week, a poem from the Puritans. It's called The Valley of Vision. It's taken from a book called The Valley of Vision, a collection of Puritan prayers and devotions, edited by Arthur Bennett. Lord, high and holy, meek and lowly, thou hast brought me to the valley of vision, where I live in the depths, but see thee in the heights. Hemmed in by mountains of sin, I behold thy glory. Let me learn by paradox that the way down is the way up, that to be low is to be high, that the broken heart is the healed heart, that the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit, that the repenting soul is the victorious soul, that to have nothing is to possess all, that to bear the cross is to wear the crown, that to give is to receive, that the valley is the place of vision. Lord, in the daytime stars can be seen from deepest wells, and the deeper the wells, the brighter thy stars shine. Let me find thy light in my darkness, thy life in my death, thy joy in my sorrow, thy grace in my sin, thy riches in my poverty, and thy glory in my valley. The Valley of Vision, taken from a book by the same title. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, January the 27th, 2008. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.